Did you, so you're originally from Brooklyn. No, Bronx. Bronx. Oh, my God. Please, please. <laughs> I'm not sure which group is going to be more insulted by that. Welcome to College U. University. Yeah, Buffalo. Natural science research. Stories behind them. Hi, you're listening to Ecology U from the University of Buffalo. I'm your host, Dr. Nick Henshu, and we're here today with Dr. Howard Lasker. And I'm in the Department of Geology and in the Graduate Program in Evolution, Ecology, and Behavior here at the University of Buffalo. Hi, Nick. Nice to be here. <laughs> How'd you get here? Well, if here is, as how did I become a marine ecologist, I guess you have to go back to a, a kid reading Jacques Cousteau books. Four and a half billion years ago, the gradually unfolding story of our planet Earth began. And deciding that doing something in the oceans would be, you know, incredibly cool. Now, those, those books uh, predate probably most, uh, most listeners. Some of some of whom may actually remember Jacques Cousteau TV programs. Right, I remember the I remember the programs. Now Calypso and its divers will challenge superstition. Because that was on the same time on our local station. It was on the same time as the Mutual of Omaha uh, Wildlife Hour. Also out of my childhood. Welcome yeah. <laughs> to Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. Today we are bringing you a special wildlife report on shark behavior, during which a scientist deliberately provokes shark attack while riding in this small underwater vehicle called a wet submersible. <laughs> so um, what was your favorite Jacques Cousteau book? You know, they just all struck me as this incredibly cool and exotic world that I was just really interested in. So, I mean, a lot of his initial stuff was actually looking at uh, marine archaeology where they were finding Roman wrecks and things like that. And so, of course, I started off going, oh, you know, I'll be a marine archaeologist. And somehow, over time, that sort of morphed into uh, biology and then ecology. And now you do corals. Coral reefs, correct. And what about them specifically? Well, that's, I mean, the reasoning of how I got into that is as an undergraduate at the University of Rochester, at that time they had a, a program at a laboratory on St. Croix, which the lab's no longer there, but I got to spend a semester um, on St. Croix taking taking courses on, on ecology and and uh, obviously that was in a, a coral reef environment. And so so one, one thing led to another, led to another, and that's kind of, you know, sort well, of how as, academia as, goes. Know, as, I, I think it's the case for most people that you, you talk to somebody and it sounds like they've had this wonderfully linear progression going from, you know, point A to point as B. sea levels fluctuate C. and continents take new form. Ours is an evolving Earth and its history always in a state of becoming. When there's a certain amount of just happenstance in, in all of that. So, as I said, 
you know, there I was taking these courses that involve, you know, diving on, on reefs and, and, and stuff. And then as a, and when I went to grad school, I actually wasn't thinking that, oh, I'm going to be a coral, coral biologist or coral reef ecologist. Um, but I was interested in marine ecology. And then as I started sort of casting about for a research question, um, what happened was that I knew more about coral reefs than I did any other system. So it just became a natural that as I was thinking of questions, I could see how I could address those looking at, at coral reefs. You had a pretty cool background before you went for your undergrad. Um, if, if, if I recall correctly, you were um, you, you. So you're originally from Brooklyn. No, Bronx. Bronx. Oh my God! Please, please. Uh, I, <laughs> I'm not sure which group is going to be more insulted by that. <laughs> All right. So you're originally from the Bronx, and uh, you were fortunate enough to go to a private school. Correct. Um, which was Harsman School. Okay. And then you went off to do your undergrad, University of Rochester, and. Originally, your major was? Well, it always was biology, geology. Was they have a combined major there, which okay. I think they still they still do. So what led to the St. Croix experience? Well, that was part, I mean, it wasn't part of that program per se, but they had just uh, developed an affiliation with this laboratory, the West Indies Laboratory, and actually um, there, you know, there were a bunch of us where suddenly they announced, oh, we're going to have this program where, you know, seniors could spend fall semester at the West Indies Lab for basically the same cost as tuition and dorm. That sounds at, awful. At, yeah, it's truly horrible. Um, as regular staying in Rochester, and it was pretty much a no-brainer. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That this is an incredible opportunity. And then grad school. At the University of Chicago. Why there, and and what helped you pick the University of Chicago? So, as I think my undergrad advisor at the time could tell you, it was a very difficult decision for me as I was weighing different places. Um, and the decision was pri primarily, I mean, certainly wasn't because this was a school known for marine biology, although there were several people there who were working in marine systems. But there's a, a, a program there in evolutionary biology. It's this, uh, you know, large program and a, and a long tradition in evolution and ecology there. And so it just struck me as the place that really sort of was addressing, I'll call them big, big question. In the erosive flow of time, the Earth's image is in constant change. And so, so I ended up going going there and choosing that one. As one of my uh, committee members pointed out, it was a wonderful place to study the oceans because we're equal distant to two oceans. <laughs> right, absolutely. What was your big question? So you get to Chicago and this great big question falls out of the sky. Well, more like I tripped over it than I fell out of the sky. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, the work that I initially did, and it wasn't something that sort of this eureka moment where I suddenly thought of this question, but um, while I was at Chicago, I had the opportunity to take a, a got a three-month fellowship at the Smithsonian Tropical Research Institute in, in Panama, and where 
I had proposed to look at uh, the feeding biology of, of a coral species and how that varied with, uh, as a function of morphology. A, a researcher who had been there had written a paper about how there was all this morphologic variation in the species, and I became very interested in how that would affect its, its overall biology. And then after working on that system for a couple of months, um, basically I called my advisor and said, this is, you know, I don't, I, I doubt I use the word great project, but I said, this is, you know, a project that I, I think is really worth pursuing. And actually I stayed on and, and, and kept working on that. And that, that became my thesis work. So how long were you in Panama then? Uh, on and off for, I mean, it wasn't continuous, but like two and a half years. And then, I, and then I, and then I continued working there for another you know, during summers for another 20 years. Right. And so that, that has a lot of benefits, too. I, I would imagine, like, having the same study spot and the same kind of plots and the same sort of species. How have you, how, how have things changed? Uh, so you, you were there starting in the, in the late 1970s. Yeah, and most of my, at, at some point, my work sort of switched locations in, in Panama. So the initial work was up near the Panama Canal on the Caribbean coast. And then, as I continued, I was working in the Sambas Islands, which are further, further to the east towards the uh, Colombian border, uh, about halfway. And, and those are better developed reefs than the, the coastal reefs right around, right around the canal. Um, but we definitely saw change in in the course of you know I'll say the 15 20 years that I was looking at the, looking at those reefs in in, in San Blas. Uh, one of the things that happens when you go to a place year after year after year is you see change, but you tend not to notice it. And it's in retrospect I realized just how how, how relentless the, the change was over the course of that time. Although year to year it wasn't it wasn't very dramatic. But one of the, something that happened to me which really struck home was one one year, probably one of the later years that I was there, somebody came up to me while I was waiting for a plane and asked me if I was one of the researchers at this Smithsonian station there. And I said yes, and he said, "Well, what happened to these reefs?" And he had basically then went on to say how he had been uh, in the army, had been stationed in what was then the canal zone, like 30 years earlier, and would dive on those reefs whenever he got a chance. And now he had come back after all those, you know, after several decades, and he just thought that they just looked horrible. Whereas I sort of was thinking, "Oh, compared to other places, these reefs are doing pretty well." And that's un unfortunately the case for you know really much of the Caribbean and, and, and Indo-Pacific as well. And you know, there's this phrase that ecologists you know, have, have coined, uh, shifting baselines, that you know, what we think of as, as natural and pristine really has more to do with our personal experience than it, than it does with, quote, a natural and pristine state because the world is continuously changing and perhaps for the last century or so, perhaps not for the best. Right. How do we document this, this slow change and this shifting baseline? Really, you know, one of the things I work on is, is looking at how forest understories have changed. 
um, as a result of, of deer populations, earthworm populations, you know, and the forest understory looks tremendously different than it did when I was a kid. But I only remember that because I have photos of me out playing in the woods and I can look at that and say, wow, you know, we don't see that plant as much anymore. But how do we record that other than just people's personal anecdotes? Well, and that's where the value of long-term monitoring comes in, where it's not a perfect way of doing things because when you collect data without a very specific question in hand, sometimes you realize in retrospect, oh, wouldn't it have been nice to measure something in a slightly different fashion? But when you have sort of a, a regular monitoring program of, you know, basically what's there, right. um, that you can you can actually quantify those those sorts of changes. And, you know, any number of sites have been established over the world, you know, by different countries and, and different, you know, research organizations within countries to, to do just that sort of monitoring. Because that's, as I said, the only way you can really get that quantitative. Otherwise, you have a, a bunch of people saying, oh, things aren't the way they used to be when I was a kid. So long-term monitoring, um, you work on St. John now. Tell, tell us about that. So this is a project that <clears throat> was started by my collaborator, uh, Peter Edmonds at the Cal State University in Northridge. And he's been doing monitoring of the hard corals. And this is on, on St. John in the uh, Virgin Islands National Park there for close to 30 years now. And one of the things that has been anecdotally observed um, throughout the Caribbean has been that as stony corals have, have decreased in abundance, and that we know quantitatively, that the octocorals, gorgonians, um, the sea fans, sea plumes, at least in some places, have uh, at the very least held their own, and in many places seem to have increased in abundance. And there actually are some data sets that show that increase in abundance. Why have they increased? At this point, our working hypothesis is that it's they're more resilient. It's not that um, when bad things happen, they they are unaffected. So for um, when there are these uh, leaching events as a result of extremely high water temperatures, you see that the octocorals are affected also, but they seem to be more resilient. So individual colonies are less likely to, to die and seemingly numbers when there are, is mortality that the numbers appear to recover more, more rapidly than, than the stony corals do. Can you kind of summarize the last year of, of excitement that you've had at St. John? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I didn't get to directly <laughs> observe the excitement in that um, hurricanes Irma and Maria Came, came through St. John, uh, Irma pretty much a dead hit, Maria to the, to the south, but both caused pretty extensive damage on the island, and most people are familiar with that because the islands were severely damaged in terms of, you know, people's homes and, um, and the like. But there, our concern, after, you know, immediately after this occurred was what happened, what happened to the reefs, because there are, there are a large number of, you know, cases that people have looked at hurricane effects on reefs, and, and they can be quite devastating. Um, so there's this sort of yin and yang of this is this is horrible, but boy, are we set up to to study this and right. to see and to see and to see what has happened and what is going is going to happen. So it gives you a really unique opportunity to to yeah. kind of see how yeah. a disturbance will will affect. Yeah. Well, it's like I, I wish this hadn't happened, but 
now that it has, there are some some things that right. we that at least we can, we can look at which we would un otherwise be unable. To we look can at. learn something I mean, from you know the, some, this the, awful thing. The, the, the phrase ecologists frequently uses is natural experiment, in that nature did something which, in this case, you know, we could never. Well, we would never be allowed to do, and if you know, and nor could we, in good conscience, do in that opening up, you know, opening up large amounts of reef space. And going back to our sites, what we discovered were that some sites were in surprisingly good shape. Um, other sites, when in shallower water, where the wave action is stronger, were, were quite extensively damaged. And and now, you know, we've documented that we were there about a month and a half after the uh, hurricanes. And now we're following, we'll follow that recovery over time. So how did that all happen? How do you, who do you call and say, hey, we've had this really awful thing happen, but you know, could we borrow your boat? So the National Science Foundation has a subset of, of um, grants that they give out for, for just this sort of thing. They're called RAPIDS. And um, they are for unique events that are require very timely access to to a site, um, and you know it cuts across the entire agency. It's not just for for ecology per se. Um, so basically, we immediately gave a call to the program officer at National Science Foundation, and you know they were obviously well aware of, of the hurricane and, <laughs> they, they, and were, they, full, and they were fully expecting phone calls from a whole variety of researchers and right. they awarded a, a variety of, of grants and the laboratory that we normally work out of there was also quite extensively damaged to the point that it wasn't usable immediately after the storm so uh, NSF was also able to um, pay for the, the use of a research vessel, in this case the University of Miami as a research vessel, the Walton Smith, which was brought down there so that we, and then and also uh, researchers from Cal State, my, my collaborators, and then also there's a research group from the Woods Hole Geographic Institute that also is working in that area that also wanted access. So we were able to sort of combine multiple, multiple requests so that we were all able to get in the water and, and see what it become of our of our study sites so one of the things that we are asking everybody uh this semester that uh, of interviews is how do we effectively communicate science to a largely non-scientific public how do we get how do we get science out and and not even justify the value of it but share the really awesome things that we're doing so i think there are two questions there because one is, how do we share the excitement of what we do? And, you know, the, the cool stories, the cool systems, or at least the systems that we think are cool, that, that we all work on. We are in a trance, a dream, hypnotized, bewitched by the magic of the cave. And then the other one is, how do we communicate information on what I'll call larger, larger questions? And I, I think those are somewhat different things they feed into each other certainly yeah. certainly if people get it also get excited about the subject then obviously it makes it easier um, they're more open to to thinking about larger questions but they don't have to be as excited about coral reefs um, as I am to learn that you know coral reefs are, are in danger at, at, at this point in time and that really has consequences for uh, for all of us, not necessarily just because it's coral reefs, but to the extent that that says something about the world in, in, in general. 
the excitement side, boy, that, that's, that's a tough one because some people are very open to just being really interested in, in critters and bugs and plants and... and He's very beautiful. Beautiful pine cones and needles. So many mushrooms. And, and others and others less so. Pretty terrible. But as I said, it's, it's, that's not really essential. And you know, I think at this point in time, the more important thing is, is help, helping to people to understand what's going on in the world and why it's, you know, why what's happening in some coral reef in the middle of the Pacific is, uh, is, has, has relevance to, to what they're doing. So how do we do that? How do we build relevance? Well, one is, I think, to paint a, a clear picture. And, and by that, I don't mean oversimplifying this, the systems, because one of the difficulties in understanding what's going on, and, and also one of the exciting things about understanding what's going on, is that these are extraordinarily complex systems. But there's, there's still, I'll, I'll call them stories, but maybe messages is a, is a better word to be told in just sort of the uh, taking a step back and looking at it on a, on a, on a broader scale. So, you know, the, you know, to say coral reefs are in decline. Now that doesn't mean every single species is in decline. I'm studying a species, you know, a group of species that seem to be doing relatively well, but the details about the ones that are doing relatively well shouldn't sort of confuse that that overall storyline that reefs really are in trouble. The organisms that, that build the physical structure that we call coral reef are, have been in decline for um, at least the last 30 years, and many would argue it's probably longer than that. And they appear to be trend, you know, continue to trend down, and much of that is, can be attributed to human activities, some of which are climate change and some of which are all the other things people do to affect reefs. And so telling that story in a fairly straightforward manner, I think, is important. And in terms of making that relevant to people, I mean, I think there, there are multiple angles. I just talk about this from the, from the core reef side is one is, you know, the overused um, canary in the coal mine analogy that these are particularly sensitive systems, but the fact that they are suffering damage is means that other systems are right right not far behind and actually also also in decline. And then the other is for to, people to understand on a not on a ecologic scale, but on a now an economic and human scale how interconnected the world is. And if you suddenly start talking about um, island nations in the Pacific that have to evacuate because of sea level rise or because uh, reefs, or a combination of sea level rise and the fact that reefs no longer provide the structural support that keep, wave, keep waves off of those islands, um, well, those are, you know, in, in some cases, thousands or tens of thousands of people who who have to be displaced, and that means they're going somewhere, and that means some other country has to have the resources to, to absorb those people, or this is, affects fisheries. And, you know, is it an immediate effect? Does this mean that, you know, suddenly somebody in Buffalo 
can't get a lobster with you know and um, probably not but it those things all build on each other and so they, they really do affect all of us and I like that you, you point out that it we we have to be very careful not to oversimplify complex problems and there is no simple solution especially in in something as as dynamic and and multi-dimensional as as reef ecology and i think that that translates into a lot of other science too is you know our first inclination when we want to share stories with people is to make it be this black and white sort of this is happening and this is bad so we should do that this is happening and this is bad so we should do that and i feel like that's a trap that that many of us fall into in terms of, of oversimplification. And I, and I think it's, I, I appreciate that you said that we need to remember not to oversimplify everything because these are complex and dynamic systems. But the, also, the thing that we also have to be careful of is not to trip over the, the complexity. Not to trip over the complexity. Right. In, in terms of explaining the way the way these systems work so that there still is a, I'll call it a larger scale net effect that you can understand without looking at all of, of the little features. And, and this becomes important in this public debate that emerged around many issues where, so, uh, you know, some individuals will pick some fine point where, you know, I, I will publish a paper and say species X is now doing just great. And some individuals will say, well, what do you mean coral reefs are, are in decline? Here's, you know, here's the study which shows how the species is, is doing just great. And right. that statement that that species is doing well is, is true. But that, you know, can't be extrapolated to the entire reef. And it's important for us to distinguish between, you know, those small little things that are occurring compared to a larger scale effects that are you know going in the other totally different direction so i want to switch gears here a little bit and um talk about what it's like having two people in academia in the same house because you're one of your biggest collaborators is your wife um, who is, I mean, could be a better scientist than you. I don't know. Um, but uh, as long as you put that in the podcast, she'll be happy. Okay. Yeah. Um, so how, how does that work with field work, with raising kids, with having a house? Like what, because we get to work with so many people in academia who are a husband and wife team. And I just wondered what that experience has been like for you. I mean, most Mostly positive. I mean, I, I think it has certainly been easier to have an academic career with someone who fully understands what an academic, living with somebody who fully understands what an academic career is about. Um, you know, as you well know, it's not just I, I teach a course and then I go home and I'm, you know, I, and, and I'm done. I teach a course and then I go home and if I'm not working on the lecture, for the next day, I'm working on research papers. I'm working on research proposals. It's it's a it's a fairly consuming 
occupation and having a spouse who also, you know, who completely understands that um, I can't sit and watch TV with you um, because I have to get this grant proposal in, you know, before midnight tonight um, is, is certainly useful. Um, perhaps it's a little frustrating when, when your spouse, on, on, on the rare occasion when you, when, when you feel when like watching done, TV, right. your spouse has, has exactly the same, the, the same statement. That's but right. no, but having that and, and the fact that, well, we both work on quarries. We've done, you know, at the moment we're not, but in the past we've done field work, you know, a lot of our field work together. So, I mean, that's just very exciting and we can trade ideas back and forth. Uh, so, so that's, that's all, the, all the positives. Um, in terms of, of raising kids, it, you know, prevents, it, it presents difficulties in, in that suddenly it's like, well, I'm gonna. I need to go in the field, you know, for three weeks to do this this research, and that means that at any given moment, one one or the other is uh, is, a, is is a single parent. Which, uh, having dabbled in that world, I have just the most enormous respect for anybody who is a single parent and and you know and gets through raising kids because you. I realize from those time periods when oh, it's definitely a team effort. When I have, when I have been in that role, just how difficult it is, Absolutely. and 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 I have the advantage of you know working at a university where, when I'm, whereas I have tons and tons of work to do, but if I'm not actually up in front of a classroom of students, I can control that timing. Right. So a lot of our a lot of our listeners are kind of at this weird spot in their uh, careers where they're thinking strongly about graduate school. How did you know that you were going to grad school, and what helped you make that decision? Well, by, by the time it was going to grad school, it just seemed automatic to me that I would that I would go to grad school, and that I was just really excited by ideas. Man's curiosity is irresistible. And it is its own justification. I didn't have a specific research question, but just excited by ideas and 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 science in general, and and ecology and in specific, and actually also paleontology, since that was what I was also um, immersed in as a, this combination biology and, and geology major. So it, it wasn't really a, a difficult decision for me. Uh, I think for those people who are sort of going, eh, should I do this, should I not, um, I never approached it as, is this a career I want to get into? And basically, it was just a given to me that I just was really, really, really interested in the subject. The first requirement of being a successful grad student is just to really, really like the material because you're just immersed in it. You're spending your 60, life. 70 hours a week working on this stuff. And, you know, if you're thinking of this like a job, that's that's a lot of time to be doing something that you're not really psyched about. So it really have to be, you know, enthused at the, at the very least. I mean, it's, it's also, you know, for a, I'll say a PhD student, you know, halfway through their work, I mean, it's pretty much an obsession. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's not, and, and that obsession, and this goes with the, the, the spousal comments too, is, is it's so helpful to have somebody who understands that part of it too. Because that, that obsession of, of 
this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing with your life. And so, you know, I've, I've long thought that people in grad school, th their spouses should get an honorary degree because most of the time it's just as brutal on them as it is on the, on the, on the actual candidate. Um, so one last story. What is the closest you've ever come to dying while doing field work? I don't, I can't really think of any, okay. <laughs> any, like, any, any, any such any cases. Incredible, any incredible research story that is like, man, that was awesome. So, I mean, the one story I can think of is now, this is 30 years ago, and we were involved in, uh, well, I was on a sabbatical, and I was in Australia working on the, on the Great Barrier Reef, and, and we got an opportunity to go out on one of the uh, Australia Institute of Marine Science research vessels to a whole series, a whole series of reefs where we're, and we went to this one far, far off reef, uh, way out and actually in sort of in front of the main tract of the, of the Great Barrier Reef, and we were going through really rough water. The only way I was not hanging over the side, losing breakfast, lunch, and dinner, coming for whales, uh, was was by just lying in my bunk. And for you know, for about 18 hours, as we're as we're just cranking through these ridiculous seas, ridiculous. you know, I just sort of was lying there, and periodically I'd sit up, thinking maybe I should get up. And as soon as I went vertical, my ears, my balance system said, "No, that's not a good idea." And and I went, I went back to prone. And then you know, we pulled into this behind this island, and you know, calms down, and I I, I get up and um, just felt just horrible. You know, just just felt miserable. And they say, well, we just have really one dive worth of work here. We just have to collect some instruments and, and do some, some very quick monitoring. If you'd like, you know, this is, if you want to get in and see this site, which is quite impressive, they said, um, you know, you got to go on this dive. And it really, at that point, getting all my gear together and getting in the water was not high on my list of things <laughs> I wanted to do. And I remember, you know, we climb into a zodiac and we, Go over, motor over to where the reefs are, and and I just sort of roll off the side of the zodiac, and and suddenly, and I you know, hit the water, and it was like, oh my god, oh my god. I mean, there's a reef which, since then, has suffered from several typhoons. And, and multiple bleaching events. I gather it's a pale shadow of what I got to see that day, but it was one of these places where even for someone used to the abundance of life and the variety of shapes and colors of a coral reef, it was just boggling. And, you know, that that image is forever forever burned in my, in my mind. And, you know, and, and that is the wonderful side light of, the, of getting to do this stuff is I've gotten to see some just pretty amazing places. Special thanks today to, to our guest, Dr. Howard Lasker from the University of Buffalo. I've been your host, Nick Henshu, and I'm here with executive producer, producer, producier, whose name is Kodiak Allen. He's sitting over there at the computer. And 
heralds the end of our fantastic journey. Thanks for having me.